From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. Um, we are we are trying to record uh, without our producer, Jeff, uh, on the line with us, so hopefully it works. Uh, it's we'll terrifying. Um, Jeff, please come back. So we were, we're, we're going to talk... Obviously, there's a lot in the in the mix uh, in the news uh, w- w- with protests going on, and one thing that is you know edging up to the policy debate in an interesting way is that I and I think a lot of other people have started seeing signs and tweets and slogans in which people are saying defund the police, which is one of these things where it means different things to different people, um, and to some extent, just means that some people think cities should spend somewhat less money on their police departments in the context of big budget cuts that are coming down the pike. Uh, But also, this connects to a a sort of, you know, movement, a, a sentiment in some quarters that policing in the United States should be not quite eliminated in the way that I think defund suggests literally, but like so extremely rapidly pared back that I don't quite know what, but we're going to have uh, unicorns and rainbows patrolling the streets instead. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it quite there. I mean, I do think the question of what, if anything, you would build in the in the aftermath. So, like, let's let's cut two versions of this aside. So, yeah. there's one version of defund the police, which is on the margin in a time of coronavirus revenue collapse. States are going to have to cut budgets. And that on the margin, when they cut budgets, they should focus those cuts more on, say, police and education. And that would create an equilibrium that is not that different than the one we see today, but police departments would be somewhat um, less well-funded or would not grow the way they might otherwise, et cetera. So there's a set of things there, but I don't think that would be a, like a dramatic change in, in, in people's lives. Yeah, this is the boring, another- sensible interpretation. Is like Right, and, and Los Angeles County is... Be, talked about cutting 100 to 150 million dollars from police budgets. So, like that 
is significant, but I think most people, most Angelenos will not really notice that over the time period that they're considering it. Well, and also I think significantly with, with, with those LA budget cuts, because I do think this is important, right, is that Los Angeles is going to do big budget cuts. Yes, like, that is like, for, a, it is for, baked for, in. For, for, for fiscal reasons, right? And so I think that argument, right, of like, how should a city cut its budget when it has to cut its budget because there's a recession is obviously important. But I think that's what, like, we want to set aside, right? Yes. The, the bigger one is the ideological critique that just, like, you should do these cuts. And so that's where I was about to go because I want to also then distinguish two ideas about how you might do that, or maybe even three. I think the most common thing you hear is we should stop spending money on police and begin spending money on education, on healthcare, on infrastructure, that kind of thing. And so I think that's one version, right? What would you build in place of it? You would build a better social safety net. You would build a better schooling system such that um, you did not have poverty's like criminogenic effect. And so you didn't need police as much. But I think it would be hard to get the time frames of those two things correct. Like we do know that police, police can create a lot of problems, but it just is a case that having more like beat cops on the street reduces crime. Um, like the evidence of that is very strong. So, and people want crime reduced in their cities. And that includes people, in fact, especially includes people in um, cities where there are a lot of crime or areas of cities where there are a lot of crime, if you look at polling. So then I think there's this other question, which you see some discussion of, and there've been many pilot projects of around the country, but I always find really appealing. I think it is crazy that any child like over the age of six can tell you the sequence of numbers that you dial to summon somebody with a firearm. But like, I'm a 36-year-old man who's a policy professional, and I cannot tell you how to call a mental health professional out to a situation where there's clearly a mental health problem that is like creating an issue on the street, or somebody who's a trained de-escalator or mediator, but who's not going to come with a gun and who's not going to come with some of the baggage that police come with. Um, like, I would like to be able to call social workers out. So I think there's, you really could imagine, and by the way, police forces in other countries sometimes work more like this, right? They don't come with guns. They don't have guns. Um, I did this interview with Patrick Skinner, a Georgia cop, and he says, nice line where he says, if you walk into a situation with your badge or your gun out, I promise you, you're going to need to use one or both. Mm -hmm. And so like his, like the, the, the idea here, I think would not just be like defund the police, but I think to even get people in that headspace, like you have to imagine like what you would create. And there's no real reason that you couldn't have just as large and just as big a force as you have of police, or at least like a, you know, say half as big that is actually people who are not trained in violence and not trained in like enforcing compliance, but are trained in de-escalation, mediation, social services, responding to like mental health problems, which are a lot of police calls, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, I, I think a useful way to sort of think about this, right, is that a big city police department is a sort of bundle of things, right? Um, particularly the, the largest ones. And the numerically biggest thing we have is um, uh, you know, the uniform cops, right? And they're out and about. And the biggest thing that they do is respond to calls, right? So police do all kinds of things, right? Particularly a big city department. There are homicide detectives. They have 
crowd control capabilities, as we've been seeing. But like the core competency of the, the, the main function that police departments serve is they respond to calls from citizens uh, because evidently people have a lot of a lot of stuff happens that like someone or other wants to call somebody for. And then the person who shows up, though, is a police officer who is a in the United States, a fairly heavily armed individual who is often treated, um, Radley Balco has a great book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop, um, but, you know, who is treated as a as a quasi-soldier in a sort of urban warfare environment. And that doesn't have to be the case, right? It could be that you assign things to non-police functions, or it could be that you change how the police operate. Like in England, uh, where many fewer people have guns at all, the standard policeman does not have a weapon. And if you need a guy with a gun, you have to call a special unit. Just like in the U.S., the typical police officer could not defuse a bomb, right? Now, police departments can defuse bombs, but that's a specialized function. But so we have calls answered by sort of generic American police officers who carry a a range of weapons on their belts, who wear armor, and who are sort of... uh, I would say, habituated to the idea that subduing criminals is like a core competency of theirs that that they need to be able to do. And yet so much of what you call police officers for, you know, people talk about people in mental health crisis. I mean, I try to think about what are the circumstances in which I have placed a phone call and a police officer has arrived. And one is somebody broke into my house and stole my laptop and I needed a police report to get renter's insurance. And, you know, anybody could have done that, right? Like, you didn't need a badge and a gun uh, to to file that paperwork for me. Uh, The other time was I saw a person who I I inferred to be experiencing homelessness on the street, apparently unconscious in a very cold uh, evening. I was concerned about his well-being, and EMTs showed up, but also a police officer. And... Like, I don't know why I, I didn't ask for a police officer, um, but that's, I guess, how they how they do it on, on the dispatch. Right. Um, and, you know, both of these strike me as functions where either it could conceivably not be the police who are doing this um, or since so much of what police do is that it could be a much less militarized sort of kind of institution without, to me, I mean, without in either case denigrating the fact that, like, you sometimes do need, like, the hard edge of the cops. It's just that, like, actually, you mostly don't. So there's a lot there. And and, and two things I want to pull apart is you can imagine a version of defund the police where what you end up with is, like, what you're, you're talking about is changing the police, right? That, like, you could imagine Congress or cities taking this and saying, okay, yes, what we need to do is defund the part of the police that responds with force. So let's give police departments more money to create internal mediation units, de-escalation units, like conflict units, right, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a lot of pilot programs like that around the country. There are departments that work like that. There was just an incident in New Orleans. New Orleans has had some huge problems in recent years. And so they were under a consent decree. They made a, um, they've like really invested there in de-escalation. And so there was just a confrontation with protesters on a bridge and the way it ended which i thought was was quite striking is the police agreed to walk away first mm-hmm. and just all the police left and then the protesters left 
But like first the police left. And like there were like stories about this and there were people like commenting like this seems too far. You got to make sure you're not capitulate. So anyway, like you can try to change police departments. And that's going to be, by the way, what a lot of police departments want to do because like institutions do not want to lose funding. So it's going to be a real push to like make that what like this ends up meaning. But I think the other question is that the relationship between police and in particular um, black communities might be so far gone at this point, given what has happened over the course of American history, that you actually just need a different institution, right? Like sometimes you just need to build something with a different culture without the associations people already have. Like we have built new agencies in American life. Like we've done it over and over and over and over again, right? Like cities create new departments. I mean, the question is how much they get funded. And so I think the question is whether or not we're at a point and you're seeing that in in, in these protests where like part of the demand is simply, yes, there, there do need to be arms of the state that you can call when something is going wrong, even violently wrong or has the potential to go violently wrong. But we need an institution that does not have the culture and history and set of associations and set of practices that the police do because like the state's relationship with black communities needs to be reimagined. It can't be this sort of like, as Chris Hayes put it in that book, like colony in a nation kind of thing. So I think, you know, I, I've been talking to some, uh, political scientists who study uh, policing and, and and things like that. And, you know, one thing that they have emphasized to me is that the institutional setup in the United States is varies incredibly from place to place. And if you're trying to think about reforms in a more specific way than sloganeering, it's sort of important to think about, well, what situations are we envisioning, right? And so I think this kind of thinking that you are talking about is pretty well suited to very large, diverse, politically liberal cities, right? So like New York City, take a canonical example. The New York City government does a lot of stuff, right? Because like it's it's really big. Their police department has tens of thousands of officers. So it could have thousands fewer officers and there would still be like plenty of officers uh, to do things. And then they could have thousands of other people doing something else, right? And like, let's craft a new institution. I think it has a lot of appeal there. You also have the fact that the political culture of New York, of Chicago, of Los Angeles uh, is um, progressive, right? I mean, most people there, most elected officials there affirm sort of like anti-racist ideas and humane humanitarian ideas. Um, and then there's a question of like, is it followed through in practice or or not? Uh, what's going on? And, and you know, we got to sort of work it out there. Um, and then African-Americans are minorities in all of those cities, like numerically speaking. And so there can be, you know, special sort of sort of concerns and, and sensitivities around that. You also have cities like Atlanta, right, which is a majority black city uh, whose mayor is African-American, like. Every mayor in a long sequence has been African-American. Most of the officers in the department are African-Americans. So whatever problems there are with the Atlanta Police Department, which, like, I'm I'm sure there are problems, it's not that kind of colony in a nation, you know, type dynamic, um, although there may be sort of good ways to change it. Then the other thing you have, like if you look at incarceration trajectories in, in the United States or just where the population is, 
lots and lots of people live in rural areas or they live in suburbs where the institutions tend to be very diffuse, where political authority is concentrated in the hands of elected officials who, I mean, it's not that they would say I'm for police brutality, but like they would not say that like tackling institutionalized racism in America is a big priority of theirs, right? And those are the places where like police violence issues are actually at their largest. Like they're not where the most protests are because people protest in big cities, not like in random suburban counties. But I think it's it's hard for me looking at this sort of like radical reform agenda and then looking at where like the bulk of the American population lives to sort of connect the dots, you know what I mean? And like, exactly how is this gonna gonna work? How is this gonna help you if you live in whatever, like the low-income section of Fairfax County, Virginia? Like, like, what are we really talking about here? I think two things on that. One is to note, and I think it's embedded in what you're saying, there is no like one solution. If, if people read former President Obama's medium post on like how to make sure this moment leads to real change. One of the things he says there is like people pay too much attention on this issue to the president and the federal government, but this is controlled much more directly by state governments and then much more to the point by city and, and, and local governments. And so there isn't going to be like one big bang thing, right? You're going to have to try things. And if things work, they might spread and they may spread slowly. And so I don't think it's the case that because taking everything you, you, you say like as, as, as correct, um, if New York and Chicago and Los Angeles all decided to radically reimagine how they do like law enforcement, it may be that that doesn't say very much for actually just to use Southern California's example here for what happens in Orange County in the next three years. But it might say a lot about what happens in Orange County if it works over the next 15 and so, I mean, I think that's like actually the history of a lot of reform, right? That like things will have to start somewhere and they're going to start in the places that are most interested in progressive reforms. Another version of this that I think you see, when we were talking about a lot of this a couple of years ago, I think the big thing people were correctly focusing on was prosecutors, right? There was a lot more focus before mm-hmm. we were talking about defund the police, like the radical idea was prison abolition, but like mm-hmm. the more broad idea was criminal justice reform. And something that came up as people were studying that and talking about that was like the key actor in criminal justice reform is the prosecutor. And so in Philadelphia, like Larry Krausner, this like extremely um, reformist progressive uh, prosecutor was elected. Um, And so he's been doing a lot of great work there. And then like in San Francisco, um, Chase. Just uh, Budin, right? Budin, yeah, thank you. Um, he was elected. And there were a bunch of places that are now beginning to elect because like, there's energy going into this, political activism going into this, these very reform-minded prosecutors. And like that's a really big deal. So, I mean, to me, a, frust- like, a frustration, I guess, of like talking about anything as local is like, you can't do what you want to do with like Congress, which is like you pass one bill and you solve the problem. But you can start things and they can change things as like lessons are learned, right? Like that's the whole laboratories of democracy idea. Yes, but I mean, you know, I, I think so. If we were to ever on the weeds talk about uh, healthcare policy, it would be good if we did it. We don't do it as much anymore. And indignant demands to no, I, I, you know, I to me, I see a certain equivalent here, right? Where like I think 
we both and, you know, like the weeds and Vox.com as an institution have sort of gone back and forth on uh, Medicare for all campaigning and, and things like that. But there's always, you know, a question of if you are trying to help people in need, right? Like, is it counterproductive to implement a sort of maximalist set of policy demands that faces nearly insurmountable obstacles? Or does it make more sense to take path dependence seriously and sort of go for it? So, you know, uh, one thing that that, that I saw on, on Twitter uh, today was um, Samson Yangwe was saying, well, if your problem with police abolition is that there's murder and violent crime, um, only 5% of arrests are for violent crime, only 1% of arrests are for murder. So maybe we should cut police budgets by 95 to 99%. And I read that tweet, I was like, whoa, man. And I, I particularly thought about it because I was talking to him earlier in the day. And his claim... He, for, for not everybody follows him on Twitter, so who, who is this? <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's a data scientist who, who works with Project Zero on like advocacy to, to bring down levels of, of police violence. And the official agenda that they have outlined there, that they call their eight can't wait, um, these are eight changes to police use of force guidelines. Um, they make some very big causal claims about how big a deal these eight are. I think they may be overestimating it. Uh, but their basic point is that with sort of policy shifts that departments can make that would not to a normal person, like drastically transform what the police department means, like tell cops they should not shoot at moving vehicles. Because it turns out that, you know, narrowly speaking, a police officer sometimes feels he has a reason to shoot at a moving vehicle, but it's very dangerous to shoot a gun at a moving vehicle, right? There's like a thousand ways that can go wrong and somebody can end up dead. So there is a large impact of like just changing the rule so that in the after action report, if it's like, why'd you let him get away? And the answer is, well, I would have had to shoot at his moving car. And they're like, all right, you did the right thing. Um, that strikes me as a path where, of course, there will be political resistance to changing the use of force guidelines, but also you really could, you know, do it, right? You're not talking about how is policing going to look 30 years from now. You're looking at, you know, governors who are seeing the level of outrage, the volume of protest. They would like to get people to go home. Uh, they want to make some concessions. Like, you could you could sort of make these changes, right? And like the police would still be the police. They'd still be kind of burly. There would still be all kinds of questions about the historic legacy of like, what does it mean to live in a country where for hundreds of years, the police was by definition an all white institution. But you might have like a lot less people killed with more stringent use of force guidelines. Uh, so it strikes me that some of the people who are out there saying, well, reform doesn't work, we need to like radically re-envision policing, are being a little, a little overly hasty with that conclusion. Well, I think there's always in all these debates and this uh, this has long been true in the healthcare debate. And one reason we've been arguing about it a lot is because the two streams converged over the past couple of years is that there's always a difference between the people trying to move the Overton window and the people trying to change policy immediately. And I think of, at least to some degree, the more broad version of defund the police is a moving the Overton window idea, right? Like, can you try and imagine a society that works quite differently than our own, right? Can you try to imagine a society where law enforcement is built upon a different foundation? Um, 
But, and, and we should maybe take a break and talk to this. Like mm-hmm. one reason that's an Overton window moving play is that the police are quite popular in this country. Right. And like that's really a, a, a extraordinarily important political dynamic here. So let's take a break and talk a bit about that. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So the the political economy backdrop of a lot of this is that, and like, you wouldn't really, I think, know this if you spent a lot of time on progressive Twitter, but like the police are very popular. So so we at Vox did some polling with Civis um, in 2018, 2019. And so this is after Ferguson. It's after, you know, the sort of previous round of protests and, and a lot of the previous round of, of very highly publicized police violence. And like what that polling found was it it's true, for instance, that African-Americans have a less favorable view of local police. But it's still very favorable. So white people have a 79% favorable view of the local police, Hispanics 77%, and black people 58%. And even given that, the numbers are very close in terms of when you poll the different groups on whether or not they want to see more police officers hired into their communities. So so among white people, 65% say they support that and 13% oppose it. Among Hispanic folks, 64% support it and 13% oppose it. And among black people, 60% support it and 18% oppose it. So it is a little bit less popular in, in black communities, but not that much, which goes to a long like finding in, in all this literature, which is like black communities are simultaneously over and under policed. Um, and a lot of people feel like they would like like more good police on the on, on the job, like solving like real crimes and um, but like less like stop and frisk. Um, but it creates a very 
imbalanced political argument because like the police are very popular and they're critics. Um, like there's not a really good way around that. The New York Times had a great piece the other day where they were just uh, calling and talking to progressive mayors of cities, right? They like talked to Michael Tubbs in Stockton. Like they, they, they were talking to all these folks who like came up in some cases on like an explicit platform of being skeptical of police brutality. So Bill de Blasio in New York City being a great example. But like now when they're in charge of the cities, like they are like, whether you want to say like they're in hawk to the police unions, or I think like more likely, like they, when they look at the politics and they hear from their own community, like things that read to people's disorder become very unpopular. Like they all of a sudden, once in power, are a lot less reformist on some of these issues than some of their um, original supporters would like them to be. And it just speaks to the politics of this issue being really difficult um, and like much more so than I think the commentary on it would suggest. Yeah. And I mean, I and I think it's a, it's a tricky institutional question, right? Because a sort of mirror universe version of, of this whole discourse, I think, is the politics of education, right? Where teachers are extremely popular um, and conservative people, like conservative intellectuals, really knowledgeable conservative people, they like truly and profoundly believe that public education in the United States is like hundreds of billions of dollars a year scam. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a, to them, and, and I think like liberal readers will have trouble grasping this, but like to them, this is an important like moral crusade. Like cataclysmic quantities of resources are being wasted in K-12 public education is like what conservative policy analysts think. On terrible teachers who have locked it in with terrible teachers unions. Right. And they have this bad problem, which is that like public opinion does not agree with them about that. But what they have developed as a workable political strategy is ideas like vouchers, ideas like charter schools, ideas that don't ask people to envision a world in which there aren't schools and teachers, but in which the existing schools and human beings are sort of rooted around, right? And sometimes they get into very elaborate sort of versions of this, but like, what they can't do, what they know is like a non-starter politically, is to be like, maybe your kids just won't go to school, right? Like maybe they'll just play in a cardboard box on the side of the street. Like that's that's not gonna that's not gonna fly. And the problem that progressive-minded mayors have, it's not just that the police are popular, but that it's not like there's some other police department that could do the policing, right? Like if you're the mayor of Minneapolis. Um, there was actually a councilman from, from Minneapolis who, who was talking about this, that he proposed some cuts to the Minneapolis Police Department budget. And then after that happened, business owners in his district started telling him, hey, I've been noticing that when I need to call the police department, they're like incredibly slow to show up. And when I ask why their arrival times have gotten so much slower, they tell me to take it up with you. Right. So that's like the police department is punishing the council members constituents for going against him. And that's a reality that you've got to deal with because there's nobody who is like so skeptical of the police that they actually don't want the police department to provide policing services to the neighborhood that they live in. Now, they might want some other institution to do it instead or some change or blah, blah, blah. But like, that's not what's on the table, 
right? Like what's on the table is you call and just nobody shows up, which is not a viable solution for anyone. And it's, I think, a problem. I mean, a, it's a it's a politics problem that nobody has really licked. Uh, Baltimore has had terrible problems in the years since the Freddie Gray protests because the police department there essentially responded to the criticism they took from the population and from elected officials by staging a kind of like mass police strike. And the crime rate has soared there incredibly, even as nationwide it stayed low. And like, it's a terrible outcome for everyone. And I think people who don't know about those situations are looking at some of their mayor's behavior in this crisis and are like, What's going on? What's going on? But the answer is that nobody nobody actually knows how you can do something that viscerally angers rank-and-file police officers without creating a, a blow-up, right? Like, there's no um, strategy that anyone has quite mapped out that that works, even though we know a lot of strategies to reform things, right? It's like, if there's buy-in, if people are like, yeah, we'd like to improve our reputation in the community, maybe we should change some stuff, like, that's fine. But unfortunately, you don't often have that situation. And it's a it's like a really awful governance problem. So so we can uh, take this conversation in two directions. Um, one is, I would like to reserve some time to talk about, like, non-defund the police reforms that seem to be effective mm-hmm. and they can can get more buy-in because I think we should like not totally um, flock to the the most controversial proposal on on the reform table but but at the same time I do want to like make a at least a slight argument for it which is to say I actually think the what you just explained about the conservative politics of education is useful here mm-hmm. because look I obviously deeply disagree with that view of the world but as you say what had to happen there, was there was a view that public education in the U.S. is like a huge wasteful problem. And like some people believe like maybe it's not the government's job, but I think more of them believe like it's done badly, it has no competition, bad teachers are never fired, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like all just like, it's like a boondoggle that is not figuring out its aims. And, you know, you had years of extreme argumentation around that as people groped towards figuring out a more actionable vision for like a different way this could be constructed. Now, whether you like their vision, like I don't like, but I I think that's sort of going to have to happen here because I do want to like say this for, for the argument, America has built a law enforcement and carceral system of astonishing scale and brutality. And the idea that we should try to imagine something really different than it is, I think, appealing. I mean, it is unusual that in America, like the police just run around everywhere with guns. A lot of other countries don't have that, right? Like that is uh, that is something we have chosen that other countries have not chosen. Um, and that creates like its own counter effects now. Like it's also a problem that all the criminals have guns, right? It's just like guns are a problem. But, you know, that is also like it is a problem within the police. And then we, I think it's something like, what is it, 700 out of 100,000 people are in jail? I think that's the rough number. It's a lot. It's a lot of people in prison. We have a higher incarceration rate than China, than Russia, than like any his, any country to our knowledge functionally um, in modern history. And so the idea that like 
you have to begin imagining something radically different. And maybe that radically different like thing is going to require quite different institutions. It's going to have to start with values, right? Like it's going to have to start with a sense of like, this is wrong. These things should be gone. But where I agree with you it, or, or where I am more cautious at least is I think it is a real mistake to first imagine what has to be gone as opposed to like what you have to imagine your utopia too. Mm-hmm. And I think that like right now it's all sort of framed in the negative. And so the, if you tell me you're going to get rid of the police force, right, abolish police or abolish prisons, my immediate like thought is like, well, and then what, right? Um, and, and people have their arguments on this, but like you tell to my parents, like, no, like they're not going to go there. So you have to like first paint a vision of like what I think you could have instead that would be better. And it could be quite radically different. I, I guess I just want to speak up in this for... I think that people who want this to be radically different, I think that the status quo is horrible. Like, it is horrific. We are an unbelievably violent nation, both in terms of the amount of actual crime we have, but also in terms of the amount of punishment, pain, and imprisonment we inflict on people. And it would be good to think about, like, root and branch, how to change that. But I think that has to be, like, I think you have to think about you have to work work backward from a society that has better institutions, not just like what you would do to our institutions. But that's hard, and like it starts with it starts with being upset. I, I've got to say, I, I'm very sympathetic to the prison version of that argument, in part because I think we can see in sort of the global context what a much better sort of alternatives to the incredibly long uh, prison sentences of the United States and the incredibly brutal conditions in American prison look like in sort of specific terms. Um, There's a lot of, you know, variation in sort of policing practices, but I have never, I don't think it's like quite as, or the ways in which it's most relevantly different seems so intimately tied to the different, the underlying difference in firearms prevalence in the United States more than anything else, which is not to say we shouldn't talk about changing that. But like, if you, if you want to say, okay, to solve this problem, we need the streets patrolled by sort of unarmed helpers primarily rather than heavily armed fighters. Uh, then you really need to get to a situation in which there isn't widespread ownership of easily concealable handguns in the United States. And how are you going to get to that is like, that's like, I, I mean, it's not hard to envision what a society would look like with that widespread ownership of easily concealable handguns. There are tons of societies like that. But like, we've been really down that road politically wise, right? Of like, can we get a marginal decrease in the quantity of ammunition that can fit into a clip of your uh, military grade long gun? It's like, no, you can't do that, right? So we are definitely not going to have like mass confiscation of handguns in the United States, which to me means we are not really going to disarm the sort of first line peace officer function in the United States, which means that to an extent we're left, I don't want to say nibbling around the edges, because like there would be big changes, but I, I do think we're left with things that are disappointing to activists, right? Like we did, um, Jane and Dara and I did a, a, a thing on the show about um, the benefits that they found in Boston of investigating non-fatal shootings as rigorously as you investigate fatal shootings, right? So a police department could, at the margin, have fewer people, like, 
doing random stops on the street and more people investigating non-fatal shootings. And I think that would lead to less crime and also less like bad interactions with innocent civilians. But if I came up to tell like an angry crowd that like that's my big solution, I, like I have to admit, like it sounds incredibly lame, right? But like having fewer people be killed would be would be good. That would be nice. Yeah. And so, I mean, one thing you will just see like in this whole conversation is like in a very like what what to, to use King in a different context than he's usually used here, because I've been thinking a lot about how you would apply nonviolence principles to the state as opposed to protesters. But, like violence begets violence, right? You have a lot of guns on the streets. You have a lot of guns with cops like that also creates a lot of guns on this. Like there's like there are cycles here that at some point, if you do not want to live in them forever, you have to figure out how to break them. Um, and I'm, I think I'm a little more optimistic about the idea, for instance, that most cops could not have guns. And that if there was like a call on a shooting, like you could send out the cops with guns. Like, and I know there's a whole thing and people will disagree with me on this, but, um, but I, I do think you could have a lot, like you could have a lot more de-escalation. And I think like having so many guns around does create some of these problems. Although all that said, this particular problem that created the George Floyd incident did not really include guns, right? right. I mean, that was a, that was a, like a knee in the back of the neck, choking somebody to death slowly. So like that was a more of a physical torture situation. So these are really hard problems. I, I think we better take, take a break again. And I wanted to talk about like some reforms that have happened and progress that exists. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. think is a little underappreciated in this dialogue and that um, I don't want to say in like, I don't want it to come out in the wrong way. Like, hey, what are you worried about, guys? Uh, kind of thing. But if you look at the data, uh, mapping police violence has a good sort of comprehensive uh, look at this, at what has changed in the United States since 2013. Um, the population of the United States has grown since 2013. Uh, but the number of unarmed people who are killed by police officers has declined. The number of African-Americans who are killed by police officers has declined. Uh, the number of unarmed African-Americans who are killed by police officers has declined really, really sharply. And these declines have been concentrated in big cities. And it has all been partially offset by an increase in the number of white people who are killed by police in rural and low-density exurbs, um, which can create a little bit of a, I don't want to say it's a mathematical illusion that like police killings have been flat, uh, but 
at the places where the demand for reform has been felt most intensely, which is to say dense progressive areas, and on the subjects which have been the topic of the most concern, which is unarmed people, African-Americans, and particularly unarmed African-Americans, there has been actually substantial change. And there's a slightly odd politics around this. Like, if you listen on... If you see these statements that the New York City uh, police officers unions make, um, the, 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 the Police Benevolent Association, and particularly the Sergeants Benevolent Association, they are crazy. Like, they sound like deranged sociopaths. At the sergeants put out a statement uh, about their context in the, in the protest saying that they will win the war on New York City. Like, like they're like an invading, conquering army. And something you would never know from listening to them is that crime in New York City has consistently fallen over the past several years and that the NYPD kills civilians at one of the lowest rates of any police department in the United States and that that rate is falling, right? So, like, they are actually... Their behavior during these protests has, I think, been unconscionable. But also, like, the things they say are repulsive to me. But what they are actually doing... I mean, not during the protests, but like during the day-to-day conduct of their work is what people want. They have low and falling levels of crime. They have low and falling levels of police violence against civilians. And I'm genuinely baffled on some level that we can't have a somewhat friendlier conversation about this in which we acknowledge that this is a bad, that that people's concerns about this are valid, but we say that they are being heard and to an extent addressed, and that to the biggest extent that they're not being addressed, it's like very conservative areas of the country where I just think like these concerns have not been heard, right? Like in rural America, there aren't people like up in arms saying, ah, there's too many shootings of armed white suspects. Uh, But, you know, like we, we should expand the circle. Like telling police officers that they have to be more cautious about their use of force, uh, it really seems to work. And what are some things within that that do work? I mean, we've had great pieces by Herman Lopez on sort of like mm-hmm. performance work. You've done weeds on this. Like, what is like your sort of like the 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 package, right? Like the near term agenda. Yeah. So so some of this stuff that's in the in the eight that can't wait. Um, you know, I think works well. And this is basically. There's a few different aspects to it, but I think the main one is a kind of de-escalation checklist, right? That before you are involved in the in the use of force, you are supposed to do certain things that are designed to avoid that outcome, right? And if you look at a lot of the, the most horrifying things that have been in the news, they just stem clearly from not doing that, right? Like you hear there's a kid with a gun someplace, you roll up. You see he's got a gun, you shoot him, then it turns out it was a toy gun, right? And that's because you weren't following a a checklist whose design is to, like, avoid shootings. Um, You know, so so that's a big one. Uh, There's also certain cognitive behavioral therapy programs that work. I mean, saying we're going to do more training sounds lame because so many trainings don't work. And in particular, implicit bias trainings don't work. Uh, But there are ways to to train officers to be able to think more clearly in stressful situations. Um, 
banning chokeholds appears to work. There is no, it is entirely possible to teach police officers how to subdue people physically in a way that doesn't risk strangling them. Like it's hard. You don't want to underestimate it. Like what they do when they have to subdue people is difficult. Uh, But like the chokehold is a very dangerous way to subdue people. There are safer ways. And if you tell officers, right, when you get to the fatalities, when you get to the point where like, a person is dead and there's anger in the streets and people are demanding a murder trial. That's really tough. It's it's just like a tough problem on so many levels. Whereas if you create a situation where it's like, just don't put him in a chokehold. You know, like even most people who you put in chokeholds don't die, right? Like it's fine, but like you shouldn't do it as a routine matter of practice. And that avoids situations in which people die. And it's sort of little steady reforms like that. And then questions in uh, how the union contracts work. Right now, it is very difficult for somebody who has broken the rules repeatedly to find themselves actually dismissed. And people who have been dismissed for misconduct in one department often just get hired in another jurisdiction that's someplace nearby. Um, Last, not on their list, but some other research I've seen suggests that um, it's pretty common sense, but if you hire more non-white officers, uh, you have less problems uh, with with non-white suspects. Um, Also, if you hire more women officers as a result of uh, affirmative action lawsuits and things, you've had good sort of quasi-experiments on that, you get less kind of violence. So, you know, this is like, you change the rules, you enforce the rules, you don't hire officers who've been fired for breaking the rules. And instead of them, right, instead of hiring veterans who've been fired for breaking the rules elsewhere, you try to hire more African-Americans and more women. Um, and then, you know, there's questions about how do you do the recruiting and, and blah, 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 blah. But it it seems to me like we should be able to make fairly steady stepwise process without endangering public safety or fundamentally altering, like, people's uh, benign sort of view of police as an institution. That's my pitch. I think that's a good place to start, at least. (laughs) I mean, it's something, right? And I do actually think that that's different from the prison case, where, like... Yes. The prison case is a different case. We should do an episode on prison abolition. Yeah. I think it is helpful and healthy to try to reimagine society every so often. Yes. But yes, you are going to need to do things in the near term that people are going to let you do. Right. And there's, I think, a lot on police that people will let you do. And then there's like a lot on police that people like won't let you do. And so like there's a there's a job for people to build a very different society to try to change public opinion. But for now, like, you know, until that public opinion has changed, like you can do a lot near term, I think, on so and I agree on the the eight can't wait stuff, which I think is very very powerful. Um, and then prison abolition is really different. We have built a carceral society that, like, I think is just unjust at its fundamental core and isn't doing good. And it's and it's buildings, right? I mean, like, you have to actually not use those facilities. Like, I don't. There's yeah. there's there's no way you can repurpose like a supermax prison for some other. Like it's, you know, it's it's not just like as a question of symbolism, you would have to tear it down and build something else there. Like you very literally would. Like they are purpose-built structures um, to keep people in various degrees of basically torture type c- conditions. 
I mean, the other thing I would say, my other pitch for like meliorism is that like, we haven't talked so far uh, today about how Donald Trump is a, a bad president, um, but in general, you think he's a bad president? It's not great. Um, something has to be done to de-escalate the mass protests that are sweeping the country. Because on the one hand, yes, these protests are driven by outrage at the underlying acts. On the other hand, I don't think you can miss the context that we have had people cooped up because of a pandemic for months and that we have uh, an unemployment rate of over 20%. So the kind of natural things that would normally get people to move on are like not happening here, right? Like there's an incredible amount of um, uh, idleness currently operating as a, as a background condition and huge numbers of people in the streets. The police efforts at crowd control seem to have been counterproductive in many kinds of cases. Uh, we are seeing opportunists take advantage of the situation to do like looting and, and vandalism. Like it's, it's actually quite bad, right? Like, and requires resolution and it requires um, liberal and moderate and conservative policymakers to try to um, look in their book of tricks and like come up with some ideas that they can say, like, we are addressing this, like we are going to do something. And it's it, it, the leadership void, both at the federal level, but also in, in several of our, our largest cities on this is like, it's boggling my mind, you know, where it's like nothing is being tried, like a commission or, you know, a, a six point reform agenda. Like, yeah, because we have a president who wants this fight. Yes. I mean, so President Trump, I think we can diagnose like what's going on, uh, but I haven't seen it really from state and local leaders. Um, and it's like it's very. I feel like the system was like so wiped out by COVID-19 that like nobody's brains are functioning. You can't just keep calling curfews and then bringing people out and firing tear gas at them. Like that's not that's not how you govern a city. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. I think that's another episode <laughs> of the weeds. But I will say that as a general thing, state capacity is super weak right now. Yeah, And you see it on a lot of different things. Like people are not in their offices. They're tired. They're like, you know, you see it in every profession at the moment. But um, yes, at a time when we need like creative, like emotionally generous and like intellectually aware leadership, it is, there are people who are doing an okay job, but it's, you know, overall the system is at a breaking point. Cool. <laughs> Always good to end the episode on the breaking point. Um, so thanks, uh, Ezra. Um, thanks to everybody out there uh, listening uh, there on a breaking point. Uh, thanks uh, to Jackson Bierfeld, who is going uh, to be our editor for this episode. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.